Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome to today's program. I am delighted to uh, have you listening in one way or the other. Um, Also delighted that today is an Anytown High School Day. I know that I said on our last program that today was an educators panel day, but that's because I was confused about the date. Today is not the first day of May. Today is the last day of April, so the educators panel won't be until next week. Um, But that means we get to spend today with Anytown. And this is one of our last two um, sessions with Anytown High School. We haven't really talked about whether we're going to follow up with our friends at Anytown next year, maybe a brief check-in every now and again. Um, But uh, let's let's jump right in here and bring our friends from Anytown High School on the air with us. How are you all today? Good, thanks. Good. You guys are sounding a little tired. Must be the end of the school year. Yeah, it's, it's been it's it's at that time of year. It's That's crazy. what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing from everybody. <laughs> um, but uh, well, you still have about two months to go. Mm-hmm. So you can't be tired yet, even if yeah. you are. <laughs> but let's 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 jump in with what uh, you all wanted to talk about today. I know that uh, we have discussed a few things that you might wanted to bring up, but let's uh, let's have at it. What's on your mind today? Hi, uh, Dr. Green. This is Lucy. Um, I guess I just have some questions about um, implementing Plan B, maybe a little bit differently in terms of. It just seems like it's meeting the student with long sessions and having long conversations. And I was just wondering about the possibility, um, I guess, more on the fly, like what I've been doing with the student. I don't know if you really call it Plan B exactly, but I would like a little feedback on what you thought and how it related to Plan B. Okay. Is, um, like a student's been having a lot of problems with his behavior in one of my classes. So, you know, I reflect on, you know, what could be done, and then I talk to the student about it. And it's not really these long sessions, but it's, you know, two minutes here, two minutes there. Um, You know, for example, I would meet with, I'll call him George, and say, you know, I've been noticing you've been breaking all my art supplies all period long, and that's all you do with your class time. I was wondering if we could try, you know, this strategy or that strategy, you know, and he agrees, and then we go from there, and then you make adjustments accordingly. Well, I know that's not exactly, you know, plan B, but in terms of, you know, being a busy teacher and, you know, you do so much on the fly, how that 
really lines up? Well, I think that Plan B on the fly can fly if um, we are confident that we are getting the information that we need about what's getting in the kid's way in whatever um, you're doing that resembles the empathy step. The, what the, the issue that I have with a lot of the conversations that take place in schools between <coughs> teachers and kids is that they're often focused more on the replacement behavior that we want the kid to exhibit or mm-hmm. what I might call, and this is not specifically speaking to what you're doing, but I find that we adults often come up with what we might call uninformed solutions. And what that means is solutions that are uninformed by the information that we would have gathered in the empathy step of plan B. And so they tend to be shots in the dark because we really don't know what's getting in the kid's way. So just as an example, though, of on the fly plan B, I was in a school recently that has an elementary school, actually a a K through 8 school in Maine, that has been implementing Plan B or uh, collaborative problem solving in the last over the last school year, this school year. Last school year they had over 300 discipline referrals in that school. This year they've had three. So apparently something good is happening. And I was being told about a kid who was uh, an elementary school uh, student who the teacher had been doing quite a bit of proactive Plan B with. And by the way, the other thing I should say is Plan B doesn't always necessarily involve a long conversation. But I do think Plan B does always involve three ingredients. Define the problem step, where we are gathering information about the kid's concern or perspective on the unsolved problem we're talking with him about. And that's crucial so that, number one, we understand, and number two, so that our solutions are informed. Otherwise, our solutions will be uninformed. The define the problem step, which is where we're getting our concern on the table, and the invitation, which is where we are brainstorming solutions not only because we want to come up with a solution that's realistic and mutually satisfactory, but also because we want the student to learn how to do this too. The only mm-hmm. people who are ever coming up with solutions to problems are the adults, then I'm not exactly sure how the student ever gets good at it. So I'm in the school and I'm in the hallway, and I was, I'd was i been hearing about this kid, and the assistant principal said to me, here's, here's one of the kids we were just talking about. And walking past me was a teacher doing Plan B on the fly down the hallway with her student who had become agitated on the way to reading group, and she had no idea why. This was totally unexpected. She had no idea that he was going to get agitated about it, so clearly she's now stuck in the heat of the moment. And um, what we later found out as they went walking by, he, he and she, very engaged in Plan B together, was that the day before his reading group partner had changed, and he wasn't very happy about that. So I would call that my definition of on-the-fly <laughs> Plan B. It, some people, including me, might call it emergency Plan B because it certainly wasn't proactive, but all the proactive Plan Bs that they had done prior to that had set the stage for that on-the-fly Plan B that they were doing. All right, all of that said, I guess my hard and fast rule of thumb would be um, if we don't have a clear understanding of what's getting in the student's way, if we don't have a clear understanding of the student's concern or perspective, It's going to be very hard for us to come up with an informed solution, no matter how fast or slow Plan B is. Not only that, 
I find that gathering that information ultimately saves us time because we could spend an entire school year uh, coming up with uninformed solutions. Or we could take the time to do, and once again, this does not necessarily have to take a long time. I don't think plan B and long are synonyms. I find that early plan Bs take longer because we're getting a lot more information than we bargained for, a lot more information that often has nothing to do with the unsolved problem we started with because we finally have a student talking, and now he is talking. We've opened up the spigot. But later plan Bs, once we've got a few problems that have been solved and we've the, the spigot has been opened a while, later plan Bs don't always necessarily take a long time and, in fact, frequently don't. But I guess my rule of thumb is I think that gathering that information is ultimate in the empathy step is ultimately going to be more efficient and take less time than uninformed solutions are going to take. So that's a very <laughs> long-winded way of answering your question. I think that took like eight minutes. That was the eight-minute answer. Um, but what do you think of that? Yeah, I think I, you know, I think that does uh, make some sense. I have another question related. So the fact that um, I already knew that this student was ADHD and had been taking medication but then had stopped, that yeah. would not be um, a defining the problem then? Well, or, no. Um, I mean, that's an interesting piece of information, and I would say that that's an interesting theory. <clears throat> but um, experience tells me that we would need to learn more about what was getting in the student's way than that information would necessarily provide. At the very least, at the very least, I'd want to check in with the student. But okay. I, I find that, you know, you're going to come across some students who are just going to agree with you. And I don't like leading the witness. So I usually try to start Plan B theory-free. And I would say starting Plan B with, with that piece of information wouldn't be theory-free. Now, you could end up there, and that would be fine if you ended up there. But I think that as much as possible, you want the empathy step to be theory-free. Good to know that he has ADHD. Good to know other information that goes along with it. But on the surface of it, at least, and you know the student much better than I do, but on the surface of it, at least, that doesn't necessarily help me understand what's getting in his way. Right. So I think that putting the time in to gather the information ends up being efficient just because of how often I've seen adults run with solutions that they thought solved the problem that they thought was getting in the kid's way only six months later and many, many solutions later to figure out when they're doing plan B that what they thought was getting in the student's way was not what was getting in the student's way or at the very least there was more to it than what they knew. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. hard for me to abandon that just because I'm such a, um, I'm so allergic to uninformed solutions. Sometimes I call uninformed solutions shot in the dark solutions occasionally you hit the target, but my experience is that most frequently we don't hit the target because we didn't really know what target we were aiming at. <clears throat> what do you think? I mean, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always, given how time 
is the four-letter word in most schools. Mm. I'm I'm very familiar with efforts to try to make this a more efficient process. Mm-hmm. And and the bad news is unsolved problems that have been in, around for a while. It's it's it it is frequently the case that many solutions have been applied to those unsolved problems previously. So that's actually not time efficient. I find that when we are able to find the time and when we are able to carve out the time, and I think the time is an unsolved problem that every school needs to tackle because if we don't have time to find out what's really going on with our students, then what we're basically saying is that we really can't solve problems with students unless uh, we happen to hit the target using the shotgun approach. And boy, what I find is that the students we lose in particular are the ones who the shotgun approach didn't come close to actually helping us figure out what was getting in the student's way. That's, I think that's like the worst thing that can happen because it says that we have many students in our buildings who we didn't have the time to find out what was really going on and simply continued applying solutions that were a reflection of the fact that we didn't really know what was going on. I think um, I'm allergic to that. And I think every school has to tackle the issue of how are we going to create time in our day to solve problems with the students whose problems we've had the most trouble solving. And if we look in the rearview mirror, uh, we find, number one, that it's not that there haven't been solutions that have been applied because there have been many solutions applied. It's just that we never really figured out what was getting in the student's way. And then when we do, we <clears throat> can reflect on the fact that the solutions that had been being applied could never conceivably have addressed what was really getting in the student's way. Sounds like any town high school still has to tackle the time issue. Yeah. That's definitely, I mean, you know, one of our challenges. Another challenge that, um, you know, I've been struggling with, um, which is one of my questions, um, the young lady that I had talked about um, in the last uh, two sessions that we had had, Star, one of my frustrations is, the disruption in momentum. You know, we were, for some time, it was actually really productive and she was highly engaged and, you know, I felt like um, we were making some gains with our meetings and then, you know, she, she's been out. I mean, then she was out, something happened, and then she was out for like two weeks. Um, she's just coming back. Um, and so that's like... You know, one of my questions is, this is a kid who, you know, I've been focusing on because, you know, some of the behaviors that she demonstrates, you know, are, are definitely challenging and are disruptive and are making it very difficult for her to, you know, be successful in the classroom. And yet, it's been difficult to create continuity with her because of her attendance. So it's, so, I mean, my question is like, you know, how do we work through that when, you know, we've created a momentum, and then it's like there's this gap. And then, like, I don't want to say that I feel like I'm going back to, like, square one, but 
in a way, I sort of feel like that sometimes with kids like this that are challenging and, you know, because then it's like she wanted to, like, she didn't want to necessarily focus on what we have been talking about. She wanted to talk about, like, what had happened in those two weeks. Got it. Which was, like, present, you know, like, what, which was, like, what was currently happening. So. Well, and I guess my main reference point here is, is um, and I don't know if this is a great reference point because after I say it, some people who work in education settings will say, well, we're not in that business. But this sounds like what happens in therapy a lot, mm-hmm. is that when there isn't continuity in meetings, then sometimes the person who's in therapy, a lot has happened since they were in the office last. And the therapist might be thinking, well, here's where we're at based on what we talked about last. And the patient is thinking, or the client, whatever you call it, has had a lot happen since the last time. And the client may actually not even be so focused on solving specific problems yet. And so the client comes in three weeks later, and the therapist, of course, is interested in maintaining momentum, but a bunch of other stuff has happened in the client's life since the last time. The therapist starts the session all gung-ho on talking about what they talked about the last time, when in fact the patient or the client is thinking, i got to tell you about all kinds of stuff that happened since we last met, right? And, um, you know, that's kind of the therapy business for you. Truth is, even when sessions occur um, on a consecutive basis and reliably, stuff happens during the week, and sometimes people want to talk about that. Um, so I don't see this as being all that much different. And to tell you the truth, so what I, you know, what, what people might say is, well, school isn't the therapy business. Well, truth is, the work that needs to be done with your most challenging students you got a lot of students in your building who could use um, even low-key therapy Um, so yeah she's you know you're thinking here's where we were at she's Mm -hmm. thinking I got to tell you about all the stuff that happened and sometimes it takes you a while to get back to it but it's also true if somebody's not showing up for therapy frequently enough then the therapist isn't going to be able to help them anywhere nearly as much as if the person was showing up. I will say this, reliably, I will say this, if a student isn't in school enough to reliably participate in the help we're trying to offer, then being at school reliably becomes the number one unsolved problem because what we're now discovering is an unsolved problem that's keeping us from working on all the other unsolved problems. So it rises to the top of the list. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I mean, I, it seems very reasonable. I guess, you know, my issue became that I was, not that I was being narrow-minded, but I was being very focused, and I knew that there were really some things that we needed to address and that were sort of, like, lingering. And um, 
So I felt like this pressure to like get back to where we were, but she wasn't, yeah. you know, she was she wasn't working with that, you know. And then, you know, I had to make a decision, and then I just let her tell me about what she wanted to tell me about. Um, but I mean, I definitely can appreciate what you're saying about, you know, the attendance then becomes the primary unsolved problem because, and that's definitely one of our challenges here in our district, you know, in, in our school in particular. You know, we definitely struggle with consistent, you know, attendance, you know, and yep. so it's really working with, you know, those disruptions of, you know, when the kid isn't there and then just sort of getting them back and then creating that momentum again. Yep. You know, it's just challenging. Um, <clears throat> so Let there be along no doubt. with that, I had another question. Go ahead, yeah. Um, so the last session that we had, I had um, talked with one of the other teachers, the math teacher, and we were going to work with um, Nana, which was the girl that I had been working with, and um, uh, the young lady that's in her math class, because there had been ongoing issues with, with those two girls. And the interesting thing since we last met was um, two things. One was that, unfortunately, these girls did end up getting into a physical altercation. Um, but since then, it's, you know, they have not, you know, talked to each other. It, there doesn't seem to be anything, you know, um, being brought up to the point where when I revisited with Nana, she basically said to me, oh, that's squashed, and I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, what and was the, the word that she that used? That, that's, that's what? It was squashed, like done with. What's the word? Squashed. My goodness, <laughs> you're teaching me some new vocabulary here. <laughs> um, and so the question that the math teacher had, which we struggled with, was her because we were going to meet with them this week. Her like her question to me was, well, since. She, since they feel like it's squashed, do we revisit it, and is that going to sort of like bring back, you know, the issue again? So we ended up not bringing them together because there was a concern that, you know, are we like revisiting, you know, past issues? But I don't know if that was the right thing, but that's what we ended up doing. I think that, um, you know, it's always a judgment call. I don't have an algorithm for you. Um, I tend not to be one to avoid a subject in the fear that if I bring it up, it'll get worse again. I tend to lean in the other direction, which is that I do want to check in. And if they're telling me that that's – how do you spell the word? <laughs> S-Q-U-A-S-H. Squash. Kids, yeah, when they're done right. with a the situation, they say it's squash. All right, that that must be. It's either that I'm too old, which is an which is a distinct possibility, or that's unique to your geographic area. And of course, we're not saying what your geographic area is, although you may have just given it away if it is unique to your geographic area. But I doubt it. My bet is that it's just because I'm old, and I'm you know totally out of touch. But um, if it is squash, then but you've just given me a new word which is good. I'll use it. <laughs> if this is squash, then um, I don't think there's going to be 
there's not usually great harm in bringing it up. And if in bringing it up, you've if if it comes up again, then it wasn't solved in the first place. Right. Okay. We've just been lucky for a while. That's all. So I'd be mm-hmm. more inclined to bring it up. Okay. So the issue that I had was when I approached Nana about it, yeah. like she wanted yeah. nothing to do with it. Like okay. she was like, it's done. I don't want to, like I'm done. I want to move on. I don't even want to waste any more time with this girl. I don't want to like me. I don't want to talk with her. I'm, I'm moving on and I'm done with it. So I was trying to be respectful to her, and I mean, and, and, and you know, and for the last few weeks, you know, that's what she's been doing. I mean, there hasn't been any issue. But like you said, you know, it's sort of the judgment of is it really, unre- like, resolved, and are we just lucky in, in that nothing's flared up? Well, know. and you can always ask her that. Is it, 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 uh, and you can always ask one last question, which would be, um, okay, I want to respect that you're telling me that it's squash, as the as the term is used. Um, do you feel like it's going to come up again, or do you feel like you guys are doing a good enough job, not having enough, to, not having anything to do with each other, that it'll that it'll last? And I would just mm-hmm. like to get that last question in. Um, you know, and you could hear something like, if she messes with me again, it'll come up again. Or you could hear, we just don't want to have anything to do with each other. That's the way it's got to be, and we know it now. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, I'm not so confident, and on the other hand, I'm more confident. Um, but I um, would be more likely to bring it up than to not bring it up. I'm, you know, I'm an information hound, and I don't want to rely on luck. So all the information I'm looking for is how reliable is this? And, you know, here's the interesting thing. Somebody asked me this the other day. Does, a, does an unsolved problem come off the Plan B flow chart when you're absolutely positive that it has been solved and will never come up again? And the reality is you never know if it's never going to come up again. You just know that you've got a solution in place that is reducing the challenging behaviors that were associated with it. So even when you've got a Plan B solution in place, um, there's no guarantees that it will never come up again. Uh, whatever solution these girls have come to in their interactions with each other, you don't have any guarantees there either. So bottom line is there are no guarantees. Some problems that have been solved for quite some time do pop up again. But I'd rather get the information than not have it. There you go. Um, I have one more question. Sure. Um, so... Just from your experience and working with other schools, um, have you found um, a useful sort of um, teacher-friendly format for sharing information? You know, one of my thoughts is, you know, what's the best way to um, communicate what we've learned with some of these kids that we've been spending a lot of time with for the teachers for next year? Um, And I wondered if you could maybe share a little bit about you know, what your experience has been with other schools and maybe best practices for that. And I, I wouldn't call it best. I don't know if I would call anything best practices. I think each school has to figure out how to do this on their own. Um, some schools slowly but surely start to expand their core group so that people who are coming in 
benefit from the accumulated wisdom of the group. Some schools make this formal. They do sort of a formal rollout, but before they do that, they set up mechanisms for people to get um, practice and get this modeled for them. Some schools don't do a formal rollout. They just start having core group members who are pretty good at doing Plan B uh, lead discussions with students who are having difficulty with the teacher or other staff member who we'd like to get good at Plan B sitting in and then help that person who's sitting in try Plan B a few times later and help them get increasingly independent at it. Um, of all those pieces that are most crucial, I think the most crucial, the rest is sort of um, however you all decide to do it, indispensable is having people sit in on Plan B when it's being done as sort of their initial immersement in Plan B. That's, you know, whether you do a formal introduction for the entire school to Plan B, everybody needs to see it in action for it really to come to life. And then everybody needs to give it a try with somebody in the room with them, coaching them along. And then everybody needs to be helped to become increasingly independent in their use of the model. In that school that I was just talking about earlier, that element, that K through eight school, um, mm -hmm. that had the hundreds of disciplinary referrals and has had three this year, every faculty member in the building has tried Plan B, and has sat in on other people showing them how to do it, and that's really the piece that I think is most crucial. Um, and they're all saying that it. Uh, you know, to varying degrees, that has become part of their um, approach to helping kids with problems in their classrooms. Some more than others, and some want more practice, and some want more guided practice with somebody who uh, has done it before. But that's the reason getting the core group really good at it first is the mm -hmm. key, because then you have people who can mentor others. Dr. Green, this is Zena. Along with Marisol's question. If you were to pass this information along to another school, like I know you do this a lot at the elementary level, how would you go about that? Because obviously they're going to have different staff. So what kind of documentation or communication would you develop to pass on that information? We have a lot of kids who migrate between schools where if we're going to work so hard with them to try to help them and then they go somewhere else and it just gets destroyed, that's not really helping anyone in the long run. So how could we how could we share this information? You mean with the schools that your students are going on to? Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, sadly, that's something that a lot of schools don't do formally. I can tell you who does do it formally, and once again, you may ponder whether the um, analogy whether the situation is actually analogous. Inpatient units, which have kids for anywhere from three days to two weeks to four weeks, uh, generally speaking, all write a discharge summary. A discharge summary is a sometimes rather lengthy summary of a child's history, child who was on the unit, who they hopefully came to know well. It also includes information that is not always especially useful diagnosis, which is sometimes useful, sometimes not, 
Um, there's a lot of historical information, a lot of treatment history in it. But the, dis- the inpatient units that I have worked with also include a section, what we've learned about, and they name the kids, so what we've learned about Johnny. And in there, they talk about Johnny's lagging skills and unsolved problems, and they talk about how they've gone about learning more about those unsolved problems and how they've gone about trying to solve them. And that's maybe a two-thirds to a full-page summary of the work they've done with a student. And it, mo- it goes on. It follows the kid to wherever he ends up next. Now, one of the fascinating things is staff on inpatient units often wonder whether all of that information actually did anybody any good in the next setting that the kid ended up in. And the, reali- the reality is you never know because one of the hard things for staff on inpatient units to come to grips with is that after they're done with the kid, they actually have very little influence over what happens next unless they have facilitated the, the kid ending up in a setting where they very much wanted him to be. But a lot of the time, the inpatient unit has the kid for three days, one week, two weeks, four weeks. And then, aside from their efforts to get the kid into the next good program, they actually have very little um, to say about what happens to the kid next or whether people in the next setting are going to use the information that re- that told the next setting about all of the great things they learned about the kid and all of the great work that they did with the kid. You all are in the same situation when you send the kid on to another school. But one possibility is to write something up, send it along, make sure it's part of the student's file, so that if you're lucky, somebody reads it and it makes sense to them. The other option, of course, is to go even further than that, and some schools do this and some schools don't, and even those who do don't always do it reliably, and that is to have a meeting with the next school's folks, because let's face it, in person, often permits you to communicate much more information and much more personally and get to know the people who the student is moving on to much better than simply a sheet of paper. Um, but once again, we are in both instances, we are talking about that same four-letter word, time. And yet, if we want there to be continuity of care, and we do, um, then we do want there to be continuity from one setting to another. In many schools, there's not even continuity from one grade to another. Um, There's no written report. There's not even much communication at all between the fifth-grade teachers and the sixth-grade teachers or between the the elementary school and the middle school. And um, that's a big issue. But I also think it comes down frequently to that four-letter word again. Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, some thoughts that we had. I like what you said about, like, in the student's cumulative file. And that's something that perhaps we could work with. And also, while you were talking myself and Zena were looking at each other and thinking about, like, if a student has an IEP um, already, that could be perhaps another um, 
place that we could document if the student was a 504 student, that could be another place for documentation. If the student's just um, not identified under those, but you know, it's just a regular ed student, I was thinking maybe somehow through their progress reports or something you know, that we could use to do some level of communication about strategies that we know are working for some of these kids, especially yeah. if they're staying in-house, just going to get maybe a different team or, you know, moving up to the, you know, upper grades or what have you. So, so that, I like that because they gave Good, and it sounds like you're talking about paperwork, uh, a, a paperwork mechanism that is already in place. Then, of course, the only thing you have to worry about is whether the IEP is actually going to get read 504 plans actually going to get read. And and here's the deal. You know, I don't think we need to do this. Ideally, we would do it for every student, right? Ideally, mm -hmm. because we would want there to be continuity from one teacher to another. But of all of the kids we most badly need to do it with, it's our frequent flyers that we most mm -hmm. badly need to do it with because number one, if things are going poorly, then um well that says that we're either lacking information or it says things are not going well. That's something that is deserving of our time. Otherwise, what we've learned, um, what a shame that the next people have to take all that time to learn what it took us all that time to learn about this student. And uh, equally tragically, if things have been going really well, if we've been doing things really well, what a tragedy that it doesn't get passed on, and there's no continuity, which means that, once again, the next folks have to um, learn quickly who this kid is, and if they don't aren't the beneficiaries of our experience, then, um, boy, what a shame. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, this and that's what frequently. we're trying to, you know, with, with that question, I think that's ultimately what we're trying to, to prevent, you know, just repetition of effort and then just loss of time when we perhaps already have valuable information that should be shared. Well, you know, the other thing that maybe could be part of Plan B as we, I mean, you never know when a student is going to move to another school necessarily, but let's say we know as you're getting ready to move on to the next grade because it's the end of the year, maybe part of what you do with the student is teach them um, how to advocate for themselves, maybe, and you know, speak up and say this is something that's worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And there's there's no there's no downside to teaching a student how to advocate for himself. But if he ends up in the hands of people who don't understand him, and who don't mm -hmm. listen to him, and are going about doing things in a way that is completely different than the way you've been doing things, he can advocate for himself till the cows come home. The, the bad news is, um, as you all are saying indirectly or directly today, lack of time is really a major issue when it comes to us helping the frequent flyers in our building. Lack of time keeps us from finding out what's really getting in their way. Lack of time causes us to apply uninformed solutions over and over again, which keeps us from learning what's getting in the kid's way and also frequently causes the student to lose faith that things will ever get better. Lack of time 
keeps us from passing along the good stuff that we've been doing with this student to the people who are getting him next. Lack of time means that every setting that the kid ends up in has to figure it out all over again, all on their own. And I guess all that lack of time is what has us spending so much time on our frequent flyers. My attitude is you put the time in up front, you're spending a lot less time on the back end. If you don't put the time in up front, you're spending a lot more time on the student than you have to. That's the really hard part. you got to put the time in to save it. Um, Dr. Green, uh, this is sure. Kim. Yep. Um, I had a question. Is it we've got about three and a half minutes left, so you'll get the three and a half minute answer. All right. Is it possible to use Plan B in a group setting with students who exhibit the exact same uh, problem behavior? Well, and it doesn't have to be the exact same problem behavior, but th I, my attitude is the most elegant form of Plan B. And I've I've got some teachers in some school doing this. I've got to film it so I can put it on the Lives in the Balance website for other people to see what it looks like. But, yes, of course, uh, I would strongly recommend doing Plan B with an entire group of kids. But they don't all have to have the same unsolved problem. Because remember, what's getting in the students' way on the same unsolved problem? If you've got 25 kids in a class, there might be 25 different things that are getting in the student's way on the same unsolved problem. So I'm not sure that's what you're looking to do, because I wouldn't go into it assuming that just because every kid in the class has the same unsolved problem, that the reasons that they have that unsolved problem are identical. I, that, that wouldn't stop me. I just wouldn't go in with that assumption. But I think helping kids of any age learn how to solve problems that affect the entire group. Not the same unsolved problem affecting every kid, but global problems, bullying, how they're treating each other, etc. Um, it's a beautiful thing when people do that with an entire group of kids. Um, and it's something that I think should be done the entire school year. Teaches kids how to listen to each other teaches kids how to express their concerns um, in a way that people can hear, and it teaches kids how to work together to come up with solutions that are going to work for the entire group. I would say it's the hardest form of Plan B, but it's very Dr. much Green. worth doing. Go ahead. What would your thoughts be on possibly training certain students how they've trained peer mediators in Plan B? I, I wouldn't have a problem with it if I've never tried to do it, but if you felt that, um, and I, there's no reason not to feel that students would be able to do this, um, it's going to take them sort of the same amount of practice as, um, I'll tell you a funny story. My 11-year-old son has had a fair amount of Plan B done with him, although in his case, because he's relatively easy, there aren't that many unsolved problems to be working on, but he's also been to many talks on collaborative problem solving because he likes hearing about it. 
Um, my daughter, who's older than him, was trying to do Plan B the other day, and there's my 11-year-old son telling her that um, she's left the empathy step, step too quickly and that she shouldn't be talking about solutions yet. Um, and so I guess the answer to your question is, um, yeah, why not? On that note, we probably need to call it a day. Any town, I know we have one left this school year sometime in May. I'm looking forward to it. I think that this program has been, um, we've covered quite a bit of ground that's going to help lots of other folks in other schools learn from you. So thank you once again. Thank you, Dr. Green. Talk to you the next time. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening in on today's program. Hope it's been informative. That's the goal. Talk to you next week with the Educators Panel. Talk to you then.